Um, if you would, turn in your Bible to um, Amos chapter 1. Good luck finding that one. Um, it's in the middle of what is known as the, uh, the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament. Um, right, children. Children are dismissed. <laughs> They're doing a good job without me. Um, so we'll look at Amos chapter 1 and the first part of Amos 2. It was uh, a little bit long to include in the, the bulletin this week, so hopefully you brought your Bible with you. Um, so this morning we're starting a new series, obviously in the book of Amos, that uh, will take us through this summer, just uh, till the end of August. Um, a little bit of background information about this book and about Amos as a prophet. Um, we can't really be precise, but judging from the first verse, um, Amos prophesied around the year 760 uh, B.C., so before Christ, um, give or take 20 years or so. Um, so this was about 40 years probably before Assyria came in, this foreign nation came in and uh, wiped out Israel, uh, uh, captured them and took them off into captivity. The original kingdom, backing up even further, the original kingdom of Israel uh, had been divided for about 150 years to this point. After Solomon's reign, you remember King David, everything was good kind of with the kingdom and Solomon, he, he reign, uh, reigned and kind of departed from uh, the true faith and uh, as kind of the judgment against him, God said, I'm going to divide this kingdom. I'm not going to take it from you. I'm going to take it from your sons. And so uh, under Solomon's sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the kingdom was split north and south. And in the south, you had Judah, which is a large geographical area. Uh, Judah, which is where Jerusalem is, the southern tribe. And then the north, all the other uh, tribes, right? Um, and that, that kingdom was known as Israel, um, the northern kingdom. Amos lived in the southern kingdom. He lived in uh, Tekoa, which is a little town probably 10 miles south of Jerusalem in Judah. And Amos was a breeder of livestock, uh, probably not just uh, sh uh, small livestock like sheep, but also large, um, large animals like oxen. Uh, and he was also, we see in chapter 7, a dresser of sycamore figs. Um, in other words, he was a successful farmer. I mean, he had a lot of um, uh, agricultural knowledge. He probably traveled for his work in the buying and selling and trading and whatnot. So he's moderately successful farmer. He wasn't trained as a prophet. He wasn't born into a family of prophets. Uh, but even though that's the case, unlikely as it may seem, God made him a prophet. And um, that was at least temporarily, right? Maybe he prophesied in, um, uh, in for, for a little while and then went back to his regular job of being a farmer. Uh, we don't know. We really don't know much about Amos at all uh, outside of this book. But God made him a prophet and sent him out of the southern kingdom of Judah, sent him into the northern kingdom of Israel uh, to prophesy to Israel in particular. Um, say prophesy to Israel, it's probably more accurate to say prophesy against uh, Israel. Um, 
there, there are very few encouraging words that God has to say through Amos, uh, through his message to Israel, um, which should make it a really fun summer for us. Right? Very few encouraging words in this book. Um, but hey, we're studying the Bible. <laughs> Did you really expect it to be pleasant? Um, seriously, the, the Bible has a lot of hard things to say. God has to correct uh, the way that we think about him, the way that we think about ourselves. And usually that correction is very difficult for us to receive, um, which is, of course, why we need it. Uh, but here's the interesting thing that uh, kind of gets us into our passage. Most of the Bible, and therefore most of the hard sayings uh, that are difficult for us to receive in the Bible, is, um, is written to the people of God. It's written to, to Christians. Um, God's corrective comes quite strongly, not primarily to people who are outside the church, uh, but to those of us who profess to trust and follow God inside the church. Just a simple statistical analysis of the scriptures. Most of it is written to uh, people in the church, the people of God. And that dynamic is absolutely crucial for us to understand. Um, when we take a step back to look at the world, and we see all the things that are wrong and broken and unjust. And then we ask and we try to figure out why things are so messed up. Um, our instinct is to point the finger out there, to find the answer out there. Um, those people are ruining our country. If only they would change or leave, our church would be a better place. There's something wrong with them, and if that problem gets fixed, then we're good, right? Uh, but the message of the whole Bible that's coming through loud and clear uh, is that there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with me. And um, no one wants to hear that. Not the unbeliever off the street not the believer in the pew, not the preacher in the pulpit. No one wants to hear that there's something wrong with us. So sometimes God has to shout painfully, loudly, um, and that's what you have in the book of Amos. Our text this morning in particular is about this dynamic. Uh, no matter how much you'd like to believe otherwise, the problem isn't out there with them. It is not out there with them. Um, the problem is in here with us. There's something wrong with us. And so let's pray, and then we will read the scripture. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, you have given your word, um, and so much of it is hard for us to receive, yet you have um, had good intentions in giving your word to us. Uh, if you tear us down, will you build us up again? Uh, would you help us to receive your word and to be changed by it, even though there is nothing in us by our nature uh, that would want to receive your word. We pray that you would help us by your spirit. Uh, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos 1, uh, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 6, the beginning part of verse 6. 
the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I'll send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, they might enlarge their border. So I'll kindle a fire in the, the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth. And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> um, let me recover just a second. Um, verse two uh, of chapter one sets the tone for the whole book. The Lord... Yahweh, 
roars from Zion and utters his voice in Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So Amos is prophesying, remember, to the northern kingdom who had torn themselves away from the southern kingdom. Well, God had chosen Jerusalem in Judah in the south as the site of his temple, as the location of his presence where he would be worshipped by his people. And Israel in the north had rejected that and their kings had set up altars in their, their own towns in a couple of their cities so that they could uh, go there for worship instead of having to do a pilgrimage down into the southern kingdom, uh, which were their enemies, right? We don't want to go to Jerusalem anymore so that we could be separate from them, so that we could be separate from Judah in the southern kingdom while pretending maybe to still be right with God and worship him in a way that he had uh, said was forbidden. Um, so this uh, verse itself is an implicit indictment against Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, against whom Amos is prophesying in, in this book, <clears throat> that Yahweh is roaring from Jerusalem, from Zion, the place that Israel had abandoned in their hostility against Judah. And this roaring, as you might imagine, is not a pleasant sound. Um, it's the roar of a lion who is ready to leap upon his prey. It's the kind of roar that's meant to, to terrify and stun the lion's prey and make it an easy kill. The one true God, Yahweh, roars, and it means death to his enemies. And the result of Yahweh's roar is that the whole world shrivels up. Right? From the green valley pastures of the shepherds, to the heights of Mount Carmel. Carmel was a a lush place where water um, could still be found even during the great uh, three-and-a-half-year-long drought that took place during Elijah's time. Uh, It was still had a bunch of water up on Carmel, right? Even that place withers up and dies at Yahweh's roar. So this is a book about judgment, and no place is safe from God's judgment But the northern kingdom of Israel was feeling pretty comfortable these days. They were experiencing a a time of relative peace and prosperity. The old uh, border wars with all the surrounding nations, uh, they were at least paused, if not just over. Um, Compared to these other nations, Israel was enjoying uh, relative uh, military strength, right? So they had a position of security. And this had developed into a position of, uh, of luxury. And so surely they were blessed of the Lord. Right? Um, and while others might truly deserve God's judgment, it was unlikely that anything um, so severe would fall on them. But uh, <clears throat> that's a self-delusion. Right? Amos' message is aimed directly at them. First, he delivers... Oracles of Doom, and that's a technical uh, prophetic category. <laughs> oracles of Doom to the foreign nations who are enemies of God because of their sin. Those nations that were surrounding <clears throat> the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 3, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, which is the capital city of uh, Syria, um, and for four, 
I will not revoke the punishment. So Amos uses a poetic kind of emphatic formula here for three transgressions and for four. It's basically he means uh, they've, they've sinned enough. God's seen enough. Right. Um, he's had enough. So Damascus, the chief city in Syria, to the northeast of Israel, they didn't follow Yahweh. They had other gods, like the rest of the nations that are listed here. No matter. Yahweh was God over them. He rules over all nations, whether a nation acknowledges him or not, whether they pray to Baal or they offer sacrifices to Molech, or whether they're a Muslim nation or a Hindu nation, a Buddhist or an atheist nation. God rules over all the nations, so he was going to deal out justice, even though they didn't acknowledge him, even though they didn't believe in him. And he was declaring judgment on Damascus because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. A threshing sledge is a big weighted piece of wood with like, uh, I think some metal bits on the bottom that you would drag across the floor to separate the wheat from the chaff and break up the grains. It's really, I mean, if you were underneath that, it would be a painful process. Um, Gilead was a part of Israel. It was a part of the northern kingdom. Um, And Syria, where Damascus is, had cruelly and viciously exploited their neighbors, uh, which was God's reason for sending his judgment upon them. It's not that they literally dragged uh, threshing sledges over their neighbors. It's that um, they were exploiting them viciously for for gain. That's the picture there. So, God says, I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael. He was one of the kings. And it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad, who was another king of, uh, of Syria. I will break the gate bar of Damascus, that big wooden or or iron bar that holds the gates closed. God's going to break that and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven and him who holds the scepter, the ruler from Beth Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. So God was going to judge them by some kind of a military overthrow of, uh, of Damascus, of Syria, and those people would be carried into exile. That's God's judgment on the Syrians, who are the, the northeastern neighbors of, um, of Israel. God is saying their rulers will be overthrown, their cities will be torn down, and their people sent away. Now, this would have been received as good news in Israel, right? Amos comes up and starts preaching this message. Finally, justice will be served, and those heathen neighbors of ours will get what they deserve for what they've done to us. And then uh, from the northeast, God jumps to the southwest and says in verse 6, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them to Edom. So the people of Gaza were the Philistines, and they had probably delivered Israelites over to Edom. Uh, Just a side note, Edom recurs here in these oracles of doom several times. They're, they're kind of the bad guys, right? The really bad ones. 
They're really mean. They hold a grudge for a long time. They basically look for every opportunity to fight and hate and oppress other people, especially Israel. Uh, and it's senseless. It has, uh, they have no reason for it. Right? So that's Edom. Gaza had delivered Israelites over to Edom. So for crimes of humanity against Israel, God was sending the fire of his judgment against the Philistines. He was going to wipe them out. And as Amos is preaching this to the Israelites, they cheer. Finally, they'll get what they deserve. And then God uh, turns his gaze to the northwest to Tyre, who had delivered up Israelites to Edom, even though they had a peace treaty, a covenant of brotherhood with Israel. God was going to burn them to the ground too. And all God's people said, Amen. Then God takes aim at the southeast, at Edom. Verse 11, because he pursued his brother. His brother was Jacob or Esau. His brother was Israel, right? Uh, Edom was Esau. The brother was Jacob, right? Historically speaking, these, these come from the same family. And so Edom versus Israel is brother versus brother. <laughs> and... Um, and it says, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Edom harbored an insane groundless hatred for, uh, for Israel and Judah and finally God was declaring that they were going to burn. And you might expect that that would kind of be the climax here of this series of oracles. Um, but God continues... He sets his sights a little closer to home, just east of Israel. The Ammonites were going to burn because they attacked Gilead in the interest of expansion. They'd cruelly gone after the helpless. They'd ripped open pregnant women. So it was not going to go well for them. And the Israelites, who had historically suffered at their hands, uh, would have been pleased that God's judgment would be so thorough. And then God went after the Moabites. But this one's a little confusing. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, because Moab burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. At some point, a Moabite king um, at war with the king of Edom had gone a little crazy with vengeance and desecrated the, the dead body of the king of Edom. That's not so bad, right? I mean, after all, Edom was the worst. They probably deserved it. God had already declared judgment on them. Why would Moab get in trouble for doing that to them? Wasn't it a good thing for us, for the nation of Israel, that Moab had really gotten Edom, uh, really gotten them back in this way? This is where you get a strong hint that this list of doom oracles isn't all about retribution for how these nations treated Israel. All people stand under God's judgment for how they treat each other, not just how foreign nations treat Israel or defend Israel or avenge Israel. And it's not just the heathen nations that stand under God's judgment because then God turns his gaze on Judah. 
It's the closest nation to Israel in every way, geographically, historically, politically, religiously, culturally. And he says, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Punishment is coming. I'm not pulling it back. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. There should be a hint here that maybe your fathers walked after those lies too. So I will send fire upon Judah, God says. It's getting a little close to home, don't you think? And there's a pattern here, actually geographically, in... in, uh, in fact, some scholars refer to this series of oracles as the, the whirlpool of judgment. Because if you look at a map, God has just um, kind of drawn circles closer and closer to the people that he's talking to. God is roaring at the surrounding countries in a spiraling pattern. And guess who's right in the middle? Uh, last but not least. It's the audience. It's Israel. It's us. It's the people of God, and God won't revoke our punishment. It's like God was, um, if you're sitting here, he's condemning the guy who's sitting on the other end of the sanctuary from you, and then he condemns the guy sitting at the end of your pew, and then he moves to condemn your spouse sitting there next to you, and then you've got to finish the process. Um, he moved on to you, he moved on to me, right? and he spends most of his time on me, on us, throughout this book. The whole rest of the book is about God's judgment on his people, on the audience. That is his judgment on me if I profess to follow him. Um, I like to think of this, uh, this pattern that you see here in this couple chapters with the oracles, not as the... Um, the whirlpool of judge, judgment, but the, the toilet bowl of doom. <laughs> it's the toilet bowl of doom. <clears throat> the concentration of the worst of it is sitting right there in the middle, and it's going down the drain first. That's the point God's been making through these oracles all along, to make sure emphatically that Israel understood that the problem wasn't just with those people who are out there. The problem is with us in here. Our instinct is always to point the finger of blame somewhere else, and God in his word is constantly wrenching that finger back to point at ourselves. We're the ones who are addicted to porn. We're the ones who want to hurt our spouses, to cheat on them, to divorce them. We're the ones who withhold generosity from others so that we can pursue our own material pleasures. We grab for power without respect to others. We lie and cover up our dirt so that people will like us better. We idolize our kids and we wrap them in a, an iron cocoon of control. We ignore the poor. We use our friends. We abuse alcohol and other drugs. And we hang out and talk with God's people about what's wrong with this or that political party. 
or social group or the president about how messed up uh, those churches are that believe such and such or that act this way on Sunday mornings about that person sitting at the other end of the very same pew. You know what's wrong with the world? What's worth taking time to complain about? It's them. They're what's wrong. Let's hope they just die out. Right? That's the message of the pastor from North Carolina that maybe this week you saw that video that went viral. Uh, The pastor giving a sermon who blames our country's problems on all those gays and lesbians and thinks the solution is to stick them all behind an electric fence until they die out. Problem solved. And then we come into God's presence together and we sit and stand and sing and pray, pretty much oblivious to the fact that there's something really wrong with us, that, um, that God has to demonstrate patience because of people like us, that terrible wrath rains down from heaven on people who are just like us, that the lion is roaring not just at them, but at me. That salvation has to be entirely of grace because there's something wrong with me. So, we just need to assume that up front. We really do. Uh, If there's something wrong in our relationships, in the the world that's immediately around us, uh, something wrong with people at work, something wrong in uh, our relationships with our family, our knee-jerk reaction every time should be to say, There's something wrong with me. Even if it's true that there's also something wrong with the other person, you're not going anywhere toward making peace unless you let God deal with your own problems first. That's the point of the, um, the gospel reading from Matthew 7. Jesus said, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So in case you weren't aware, there is a log in your eye. There's a log. You are someone who cares more about yourself than other people. You are driven by greed and a desire for power. You are prone to undervalue the image of God in other people. So, we need to assume that the finger is pointing squarely at us, and I don't just mean that we should take that for granted. Oh yes, of course there's something wrong with me, but really my spouse is the problem in this marriage, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I struggle with ambition now and then, but that other guy at work is so inflated with self-importance, I just cannot stand working with him. Well, I know I'm not perfect by any means, but those people driving their political agenda are just plain godless, and it's no wonder God has apparently abandoned our country. Or, wow, I, I guess I really am a sinner. I hope the guy sitting next to me is listening to this sermon. Or, 
wish that person were here to hear this sermon. Because if that guy gets humbled, it'll go a long way in our relationship. You can't, uh, you can't just tip your hat to God's message here through Amos and then go right back to condemning the people around you for their wickedness. You know what? God's dealing with them. Whether they like it or not. Does that make you happy? And now God's dealing with you whether you like it or not. And God says that your marriage is worse off because you are in it. Your presence is a detriment to your work environment. If our nation is in fact experiencing God's wrath, it's because of us. If our church is an unpleasant place to be, well, no wonder I'm here. And if we can't come to grips with that, we're going nowhere. If we can't properly diagnose the problem, you can't apply the solution. If the problem is out there with them, the solution is fix them. But God says that the real problem is that not only is there something wrong with us, something wrong with me, but that problem runs so deep that I refuse even to acknowledge it. We have a tendency to be totally blind to our own faults, blind to our contributions to making this world worse. Blind to the ways that we rebel against God, the ways that we hurt other people, basically blind to our own sins, right? And we prefer it that way. There's something so wrong with me that I will not listen to the prophet who tells me that there's something wrong with me. So what's the solution to that? And who's going to break through the blindness the deafness, the stubborn hard-heartedness. Who's going to get our attention and make us hear that there's something wrong with us so that we can beg for mercy? Will a roaring lion get the job done? How about the lion of Judah? The lamb of God who was slain. The gospel says... That things are so bad that the Son of God had to suffer and die on the cross if you're going to be made right with God. If you're going to be forgiven and reconciled to God. That's how severe the punishment is that your transgressions deserve. Only the death of the innocent, righteous Jesus could remove your condemnation from you. Apart from Christ, you're God's enemy, and the same doom hangs over your head that hung over Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, and Edom, and all the rest. But while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Even though God didn't have to, he loved you, and he gave his son for you. That's just who he is. That's who God is. That's who Yahweh is. The one who revealed himself. Yahweh is the covenant personal first name of, of God. He has revealed himself to an undeserving people. All throughout the scriptures, it was undeserving people. And he's revealed himself as their savior. As the covenant God who makes promises of grace and makes good on them.
And that God, Yahweh, roared with all his might at your sin. And then he leapt upon his own son instead of you and tore him apart in his wrath so that there is no wrath left for you. And when you know um, that he did that for love, for love, not just to terrify you, for love, then that'll break through your resistance. Because of the gospel, it's okay to admit that there's something wrong with us. You have the freedom to own your sins, even the worst of them, because Jesus came to have mercy on you, to save you from yourself. You couldn't do it for yourself. And when you comprehend the love of Christ in such a way that you are truly freed to acknowledge how messed up you are, then you're able to help your brother or your sister with their troubles, with their transgressions. It's only the person who's uh, willing to really address the log in his eye who is able to help his brother, someone that he should care for, with the speck that is in his eye, and to do that out of Christian love instead of condemnation. The most helpful Christians are the ones who confess openly, there is something deeply wrong with me that I can't fix. Hi, my name is Eric. There's something wrong with me. And that we need the mercy of God that's given through Jesus Christ. These Christians, then, are disarming and effective in their honesty, in their humility, in their genuine love for the people that are around them, in their ability to gently but firmly address what's wrong in other people's lives. So let's ask God to help us to respond well to his mercy, also to his judgment. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't want to be a people who are condescending of other uh, people or who condemn others around us thinking that um, you know, the main things that are wrong in the world are all of them. We want uh, you to come and help us to uh, expose where there's something wrong with us. Help us to understand what's broken inside and help us to know that it's so deep that we can't fix it on our own. We, improving our morals is, uh, is not the way this world is going to get better, but um, throwing ourselves on your mercy is uh, the only hope that we have. It's the only hope this whole world has to confess our sins to you together and to, um, to throw ourselves on your mercy, to, to receive the free forgiveness of sins that comes in the gospel. We pray that you would drive this home deeper into our hearts and make us the kind of people who freely acknowledge our need, our deep need of your forgiveness and your grace, and then make us people who, who participate in the ministry of shedding abroad this love, this grace that you've poured out in our lives. Would you help us be conduits of your grace, the kind of people who, um, in acknowledging our own sins and acknowledging your mercy, are able to bring your mercy to bear in other people's lives better. We pray that you would help us. Um, we can't do this for ourselves. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.